Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. As we continue our Live a Better Story series, our scripture reading for today comes in Acts 9, uh, verses 1 through 19. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is another way to say the early Christian church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and, he, and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent days, several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. So I, uh, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. I am uh, thrilled that you are here. I'm thrilled that you're here to hear this message Uh, for someone in our church is going to give it. There's three different responses that I hear when I invite someone from our community to share the message. Sometimes, very rarely, it's, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, Most commonly, it's, "Uh uh-uh, no way, no how. And the third response is the response that Stephanie gave me, which was, dang it. I think I'm supposed to. And so uh, Stephanie and I have been friends for uh, over a decade. She has the gift of gentleness, kindness, compassion, and wisdom. Um, And I'm so thrilled that she uh, is here to share this message. Um, You know, it's been said, Stephanie, why don't you come up here? Um, It's been said that the shortest distance between two people is a story. And uh, I think it's always a sacred thing when someone vulnerably and carefully shares their story. So would you guys do me the honor of welcoming Steffi here? How's that? (laughs) Well, 
When I was in school, my favorite English teacher was Mrs. Shannon. I never really enjoyed reading until I had her, and then I really discovered the power of a good story. So I was thrilled when uh, Mark introduced this series called Live a Better Story. So we're all gonna go back to middle school English, and we're going to dig up all the elements of a powerful narrative each week. So last week, Mark shared about the exposition of the story, and that's the portion of the story that provides all the essential background information uh, that's necessary for the story to make sense. The stasis introduces the current world of the story and the way things are before the trigger. The trigger departs from the stasis and it sets up circumstances that require characters to go through transformation or a change. Today, I'm gonna introduce the protagonist. All good stories have one. It's the main character with whom the reader connects and with whom the story transforms. They're usually the least likely to be chosen and yet they're swept into an exciting and sometimes harrowing tale. Think of the small hobbit with the furry little feet in Lord of the Rings and his story. Or what about the nerdy Peter Parker? How unlikely is he when he had his transformation into Spider-Man? The protagonist experiences conflict, tension, loss, doubt, and in the end, they are changed by it. Without these events, even our own stories remain flat and just uncompelling. We're attracted to the idea of growing, but it's hard to release control. And so sometimes something has to move us out of that flat and static place in our lives and take us to a place where we're willing to change. Before I dive into the protagonist today, I have one small digression. That's a good English term, isn't it? Did you know that we all carry around with us a box? It's the construct of our lives. Our boxes are formed and filled out by our family of origin, the culture we live in, our hopes and our dreams, our values, our expectations, our disappointments, our views on faith, our views on politics. It's the structure we live within, and it's the lens through which we see the world. I wanna use this metaphor as I talk about the protagonist today, because he has a box, and we're gonna follow him along his storyline. Okay, with that in mind, let's talk about Saul. He is the protagonist in our story, and he and his box are going to have an encounter with Jesus that is gonna radically change his structure, the results of which are still impacting the world today. Saul, and he's also known as Paul, so I may slip into either one of those, so don't be confused. He was born around AD 5 in the town of Tarsus, which is now in modern-day Turkey. His family was not only Jewish, but they were also Roman citizens, which boosted their status quite a bit. Around the age of 10, Saul was such a prodigy in Roman education and in Jewish learning that his parents sent him about 350 miles away to Jerusalem to study under a really famous rabbi named Gamaliel. 
He, like his father, was among the elite Pharisee sect. They were the super shiny, you know, religious all-stars of the day. Saul's box that he had at that time, he had some very strong pillars that formed who he was. Things like being versed in all of the Jewish laws that were to be kept from the Torah. He knew a lot about Roman and Jewish politics. The keeping of the law was of utmost importance because that's how you proved you were righteous before God. Um, also, he was, uh, it was important to him to protect the Jewish way and, and the laws as given by Moses. It was a very high priority. So what a wonderful future this young man had. He was Roman, wealthy, powerful, well-educated and respected. Most of all, he truly, truly loved God. He had quite a well-formed box. <clears throat> Saul and his box first show up on the scene uh, in Acts chapter 7 and 8, just before our passage. And he's at the scene overseeing the killing of a man named Stephen. Now, by Jewish law, you could be arrested and stoned to death if you taught contrary to the national religion and against God. Stephen had been teaching about Jesus, his resurrection, and a new way of to live in freedom from the law. Evidently, Saul was tasked with arresting and imprisoning those who were following this growing sect called the Way. They weren't yet called Christians yet, but that's who they were. Jesus, too, had been killed for his radical teachings uh, that were contrary to the well-kept law, things like touching and healing sick people on the Sabbath. Working on the Sabbath was a big no-no. Eating with tax collectors and maybe women that didn't have great reputations. Even talking to women at all would make him suspect. He kept company with the poor, the marginalized, the outcasts. All of these things were against the Mosaic law and fiercely upheld by the ruling religious party. These followers of Jesus continued his example in contrast to the law and telling of the resurrection of Christ while acting with great kindness and compassion to those around them. And people were flocking to this daily. Now Saul, being very serious about his relationship with God, uh, you know, he wasn't a bad man. I believe he was very sincere. He was just simply sold out to protecting the sanctity of what he had built his life on, his box. But his box was about to be turned on end. His experience with the risen Christ would catastrophically devastate it. This kind of event is what we call an inciting incident in the storyline of a protagonist. It's an unforeseen event the author uses to transform the character. So Saul, being an overachiever from an early age, he was traveling even outside of Israel by 150 miles to another country, Syria, in order to drag the people participating in the way back to Jerusalem to arrest them, put them on trial, and probably kill them. He had letters of consent backing him from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. As I think about this, I can't imagine the fear that these Christians must have experienced. In our passage on the road to Damascus, Saul was literally knocked to the ground 
by the light of Jesus, and he fell into complete blindness. He couldn't eat. He couldn't drink. I doubt if he could sleep because the words in his mind kept going over and over again, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who in the heck are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. God had Saul's full attention now. He's on the ground, he's blind, disoriented, and he's praying in complete humility. He has to now be led by the hand into the very city where he was once leading the attack. In the meantime, in an even greater plot twist, you can't make this up, God was rattling another man's box. This man was a member of the way, the Christians. And God was asking him to go and pray for Saul so that Saul could receive his sight. Well, his name's Ananias. Ananias was understandably argumentative and fearful. Let me get this straight, Lord. You want me to go to the man that is here to imprison and kill me? I've heard all about what he's been doing in Jerusalem. This makes absolutely no sense. But God said to him, go, because I have chosen him to carry my name to the non-Jews, to kings, and to all of Israel. Well, Ananias, he had his cornerstone of his box in Christ, and so he went. I love how Ananias approached Saul. Saul, who must have been feeling so scared, vulnerable, and in total darkness. I probably would have said, dirty, rotten scoundrel, it serves you right. But Ananias, you know what he did? He put his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, Jesus, whom you met on the road to Damascus, he sent me to you so that you might again receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He was immediately baptized, and he spent a few days in Damascus there with the disciples, and I wonder what they talked about. I wished I could have been a fly on the wall as they regaled all their stories about Jesus. Well, I want to take a minute to look at Saul's timeline for a minute. The early part of his life, you can see, was his stasis in that where he was born and all of his education. And then the trigger started when he started on the road to Damascus. And then the incident of meeting Jesus. Um, it's a little fuzzy in scripture, but at some time right after he spent time with the disciples in Damascus, he went, according to uh, the first chapter in Galatians, he went to the desert of Arabia for a time. Now, I'm not sure who he was there with or what was going on, but I know that his box was under reconstruction and he needed time away from the temple from the Sanhedrin, and all that was familiar to him to spend time with Jesus. This kind of change doesn't happen overnight. There was a massive paradigm shift in Saul, and he was on a journey of what it means to live in the freedom of Christ and not under the law. His box was upended, rebuilt, and transformed to a new and different story. We'll have a chance this week to draw out our own timelines and mark the events in our lives that moved us from stasis into transformation, just like Saul. If you haven't already, we've got these great journals that are going to be so helpful on that journey. I've got the pleather one. 
it's really cool. I was looking at it and I saw that I can also use it as my wallet. <laughs> and some of you guys, you remember how you don't, your wife doesn't want you to wear your old cargo shorts anymore? Now you have to. This will fit right in that side pocket. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. <laughs> well, seeing Saul's timeline causes me to reflect on my own timeline. And as I hold it up to Paul's box and to his story, boy, I see startling similarities. You see, God's never as content with our box as we are. One of my best friends from childhood, her name's Steph, just like me. We grew up together in a little town of Rockwall, Texas. And boy, we went through awkward middle school, youth group, young life, boys, Christian camps. We must have run down the aisle together to accept Jesus as our Savior 12 times, just in case we weren't really saved. We would cruise the Sonic together in her white Camaro with the T-tops, listening to REO, Speedwagon, and Chicago. Yes! <clears throat> we were so cool. As we went off to Baylor, we continued to grow in our love of Christ and faith. We were both Young Life leaders in some of the poorest schools in Waco. And Ron, he was a Young Life leader with us, so of course she was the first person I told when he kissed me for the first time. She has always and still does affectionately call me her sissy. I have never met anyone that loves as big as Steph or has a heart for the marginalized in this world as she does. The construct of our boxes growing up were quite safe and we were admired in our little Christian culture. Here were some of the pillars of my box. Jesus died for me and he has a great story for my life. I am so thankful to my parents for instilling that cornerstone firmly into the foundation of my life. No matter how many ways my boxes shifts and changes, this remains firm. Number two, God is to be feared as shown in the Old Testament. And if I don't do right, his terrible anger might lash out at me to set me straight. Of course, I knew about Jesus and forgiveness, but that Old Testament God was always kind of lurking about waiting for me to mess up. Obedience results in blessing, and disobedience results in curse. Easy peasy, right? The people pleaser in me took this quite seriously. Thus, all the running down the aisles, I suppose. <clears throat> God's word is like a recipe book. You just follow it and live it. Simple. There was a, a bumper sticker I remembered at the time that said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. <clears throat> but it's my job to also protect it and to surround myself with people who think like I do. The last one that was important to my early box was tell as many people about how they too can have my box. I've got the best box. Don't you want it too? And, you know all my interpretations of scripture, you should have mine. By any means, get them saved. If I don't tell them, who's going to? Their lives, are etern their lives in eternity are going to, it depends on it. So, you know, I had really, really good intentions. I did love Jesus. I did. But I had built a lot of fear into my structure. But can I just say, just for a second, in college, oh gosh, I was a superhero in the faith. I was shiny and strong. 
I could pray your socks off. I could quote scripture and, you know, worship like an angel. And I had wisdom beyond my years, so they said. But uh, I also had an answer to everything. <clears throat> Sorry, just threw up in my throat just a little bit. Um, anyway, you know what I'm thankful for? That God uses us in spite of ourselves. There is a verse in Hebrews that says, all things that can be shaken will be shaken in order that that which cannot be shaken will remain. I had some shaking that was ahead of me. Three inciting incidents on my timeline that would shake my box and move me out of stasis and on towards transformation. While Paul's incident was all at once catastrophic, mine was more like the, oh, the, the super slow-mo clip in the Talladega Nights. Yep, I'm flying through the air. This is not yep. good. Ricky! Yeah, that's what it was like for me. Um, Fifteen years after college, I was contacted by Stephanie, and she wanted to tell me that she had been hiding a secret since childhood. I was shocked, because I was her best friend. She said it had become way too excruciating to keep the secret any longer from herself, or from her people she loved, and she needed to finally be honest with who she was. And then she said it. I'm gay. I was completely blindsided and shocked. I mean, we don't have gay people in our circles. <clears throat> I'm embarrassed to say that my first reaction to her wasn't one of love. This is what I could have said. Steph, oh my gosh, how you must have been suffering. Are you kidding me? How have you held on to this for so long in total isolation with a secret that's seen as so shameful in the culture that we were raised in? I am so sorry. Oh no, I didn't do that. Just like Saul, with the authority of my interpretation of scripture, I wrote her a letter. Of course I was loving. But some things needed to be said here to my friend on my behalf by God. Me and my box, we wielded a sword like a machete. Steph, choose you this day whom you will serve. You have life and death in front of you. Which one are you going to pick? You're choosing death. You know what, the, what God thinks about this. You know, it says that it's an abomination. There's ministries that can fix you, Steph. I'm pretty sure I've got some pamphlets Never mind, these ministries are all now defunct for their huge failure rate and the huge psychological problems they were causing with the people that went through them. I am nauseated, nauseated at my recklessness. As if she had not been bringing this to God for years, staining her sheets with tears and begging for this not to be her lot in life. By coming out, she was risking everything. She would be cast out, 
of the Christian tribe she dearly loved. Oh, and the courage of that woman to step up and be authentic. And I acted exactly as she had feared I would. At the time, though, I, I felt as Saul did, justified in my actions as standing up for the values of the Bible. So I used God's word to cuff her and drag her into further prison of shame. But if I was right in all this, why was something gnawing at me on the inside? A dissonance beginning to create cracks in some of the pillars of my box. Now, regardless of how you parse out this complex topic, it's important to remember there are real human beings behind the statements we make, and I hope we can all agree that the first response should not be to, to shame them or weaponize the Bible like I did. These dear ones, they are already carrying around so much more of a burden than you or I can even imagine. Let's show compassion. The second rumbling to my box happened in California. Ron has a dear relative, <clears throat> and he has long since shunned his strict and legalistic upbringing as a Catholic, and he's living as an as a atheist. So uh, when we met, we were the conservative Christians from Texas, and he was the terrifying atheist liberal from California. But you know what? God did something really beautiful between us. And I remember about this time, um, the gay debate was picking up steam in California. And uh, he told me a story. He, he told me a story about his uncle who was gay. And he said that his uncle, um, you know, was older and, and was sick and was dying and was in the hospital. And this was at the time when, uh, unless you were family, you, you couldn't be in the room with them. Except his family had disowned him. He had a longtime partner. For years they were together. And he was not allowed to be at his side and hold his hand as he took his breath, last breaths in this world. He would die alone without the most important person by his side. Mike, our friend, teared up as he recounted the agony of both men, the living one and the dying one. And he said, how does this make any sense with what I've heard about the, the character of who Jesus is? If this is Christian love, I, I can't have any part of God. I knew this was a sacred moment. I didn't say much. I just hugged him and I said, I know, you're right. This is not the Jesus that I know. Like the game of Jenga, some of my main supports were being kind of pulled out from under me, and I was like a quivering tower. During this time, uh, we moved to Austin, and one of the only things I kept encountering with God was that I needed to judge less and love better. I mean, I could not get away from it. It was in every Bible study, every self-help book I was reading, I was even reading just a novel, and, and it still showed up there. You know, God's, God's like that. He's always pursuing. It hit me in the middle of a New York Times bestseller. You, Stephanie, you need to judge less and love better. 
I thought of Stephanie immediately. Stephanie had a crack the size of the Grand Canyon in the back of her box. And I had not loved her well. It had been five years of relative silence, and I knew what I had to do. I was terrified. But I went to go see her. But you know what? Steph, she's like Ananias. She's a Jesus follower. And so she was gracious and kind to me. She hugged me, we reminisced, and we laughed. She made me feel so at ease. She had become the CEO of a community center in downtown San Antonio, serving the poor and the underserved population. She had not changed a bit. She didn't have an agenda to turn the world gay. She was exactly the same. Just keeping her head down and doing the work of Christ. She had to walk away from the institution of the church, but she found Jesus in other quiet places where she didn't have to hear all of the rhetoric that she grew up with. I saw her several times that summer, and I finally sat and listened to her story, and she was so gracious as I asked question after question. She introduced me to her amazing wife, who works with severely handicapped special needs adults. She lovingly changes their adult diapers and works with those who cannot even speak or feed themselves. She loves on them. She brings them dignity. They too deserve to have the touch of Jesus. I listened to her coming out story too, and it completely broke my heart. It's a miracle that either of these two held on to their faith with what they had experienced through the church and through Christians they knew. One more inciting incident in my trifecta. This one would prove to take me to the ground like Saul. After the summer of healing with Steph, my youngest child, Brooks, left his Facebook account open on my desktop. So being a good nosy mother, of course I took advantage of it. <laughs> Brooks had been increasing in anxiety, depression, and especially self-loathing. The first message I came across, it was only a couple of days old, and it was to my friend Steph. I was so intrigued, and so I opened it, and the first line said, Hi, Miss Steph. This is Brooks. I know you're gay. I am, too. Stood there blinking with my mouth agape. Brooks was reaching out to Steph about the best way to tell us, his parents. He was scared. All right, I'm going to take an aside. This is a good literary term as well. <sighs> and cue a complete freak out. This can't be happening. I mean, we're a Christian family. This doesn't happen in Christian families. Oh, no. No, no, no. Brooks, you are not going to come out. In fact, why don't you turn yourself back around and get back in that closet and move over? Because I am coming in there with you. We're going to shut this door tight and live happily ever after. I'll tell you that right now. Sorry, I have to either laugh or cry. <laughs> this was almost eight years ago to the day. And looking back on my timeline, I cannot imagine 
a better person for my child to come out to than Steph. But at the time, I couldn't fully appreciate what God had done by bringing her back into my life. I was too busy. I was too busy on the ground with Saul, crawling around, blind, disoriented. I was kind of groping around looking for that Christian parenting book that had the chapter on how not to freak out when your child comes out. Or, oh, I know, the chapter on how to raise a gay child in a loving Christian home. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. It's not in your book either? Yeah. Not only could I not talk to, I couldn't talk to even my, my small group or my Christian friends. They wouldn't know what to do with me. My extended family, oh no, 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 no. Like Saul, I was blind and isolated. I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. But just like the ironic plot twist of Ananias going to Saul, guess who showed up to pray for me? And take me by the hand. Steph, the one who calls me her sissy, would be the one to show me how to love like Jesus. She gently helped me to set aside some of my own feelings and grief so I could focus on the turmoil and shame my own child was enduring. Brooks, oh my gosh, he has always been my easygoing baby, bursting with joy and laughter. Super intuitive from a very early age, but by junior high, he had begun to realize he was quite different than the boys around him. And this was absolutely not acceptable in his family or his faith. Alone, he was begging God for it not to be. He tried to date girls. But the more he tried to please God, his family, and the culture at large, he was being crushed by the weight of feeling like a misfit and perhaps a mistake. Not only that, Brooks had already cast judgment on himself as unlovable to God. No wonder he was self-loathing. This heavy burden finally took its toll on him in the form of a mental health crisis that almost led to his death. But that transformation story is an inciting incident for another day. God has done amazing things in the life of Brooks and in his box, and someday, maybe he'll share his story with you. Because like all of ours, it's still being written. As for me, back to me, I spent a few years in the desert of Arabia with Paul, reevaluating, rebuilding, reading, 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 spending time with Jesus, this incident sent me down a transformative path of what it truly means to love better without condition as Jesus loves me. God had been busy putting together sturdier supports to hold my ever-growing roomier box. How did I ever live so small? The transformation of my box is starting to be reshaped by things like the word Eucharisteo. This Greek word I actually had tattooed on my forearm <laughs> just a couple of years ago with one of my best friends. She got one too. But Jesus, he uses the word Eucharisteo 
uh, at the Last Supper, and I think about this every time I take communion, at the breaking of the bread, which is his body, and the pouring out of the wine, which is his blood, as he demonstrated what absolute true love does, he gave thanks, he did it with grace, and he exuded joy. Christ did this for me, and I am compelled to pass this on to others. I also have something I call the fruit test. In Paul's letter, the guy we're talking about, to the Galatians, he tells us what is produced when we live in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Does my life and my words and actions produce this fruit? Or am I a little stinky and rotten sometimes? People on the tennis court might think I am. Also, I live, I'm, I live as a free person. I live in freedom. I'm not a slave to fear, and I'm free from judging. I'm good with messy faith and not having all the answers. It's actually a very freeing thing. And I do love to wrestle with scripture. I love it. I love wrestling and questioning, and I know that God is big enough for all of it. So transformation and reconstruction, it is a bit scary. God had disrupted the stasis of my box, which forced me to step into faith. And now when I read the Bible, I approach it differently through a new lens, and I can hardly keep from crying, I'm telling you. When I read the stories of Jesus and how he was upending boxes wherever he went by not following the code of the law, hanging out with the misfits. So this began to change something in me, and I began trying to love better. I started out by helping in a nonprofit street youth ministry. The clients are teens to early 20s, and they are living on the streets of Austin, Texas. Many of these are gay, booted from their homes, some by Christian families, struggling with mental illness. I literally have to restrain myself when I see someone like that so that I don't attack them in a full body bear hug because of how much love Jesus has given to me for them. I also, after I did that for a little bit, I've also had the opportunity to walk with really dear friends that have come out and have been deeply, deeply wounded by the faith communities that they were a part of or rejected by their parents. I also get to walk with Christian moms who are in isolation grappling with some of the same things I did. And they don't have anybody to talk to. I am completely humbled by a God that would choose me, such an unlikely character, such an ugly little box, to bring home, to bring hope and healing to these people in the name of Jesus. But aren't we all unlikely characters in the story of God? But in order for us to play our part, as a protagonist in God's story. We need to remember our own story. This week, as I said, we're going to use the timeline to recount the incidents in our own lives and see how God is using it to transform us. In closing, there are probably some here today 
who are currently living through challenges in your own storyline. You too might feel like Saul. Something that you haven't expected has thrown you to the ground. And it has started a deconstruction of your box that you're not sure is salvageable. I just want to hold your hand for a second and tell you that God has not abandoned you. That crack in your box that nobody sees, he sees it. He is consistent in Scripture for taking the weak and worn, the very least qualified, and using these to play key roles in his story. Transformation stories, oh my goodness, they are his very favorite. And guess what? We're all in one. Your storyline, all of you, the one where you're the protagonist, it is far from over. Give that tired and worn heart over to Christ who loves to transform and redeem everything. He wants to write a great story through your life. Amen.